0: instead of of stopping the gvm and restarting it again, what they will do is they have two specific class loader, one for your classes and one for the whole libraries and stuff. And they will just scratch your classes class loader and like create a new one. And in that way you can change your own bytecode without restarting the gvm.
1: Hello and welcome to DevOpsona. Sometimes great idea start from a little experiment. Today we're discussing about the idea that the colleague of Nicholas Frankel from Hazelcast came up with. The question is whether you can achieve a true continuous deployment of bytecode on a single Java virtual machine instance. What if compilation could be seen as changes? What if those changes could be stored in a data store and a listener on this data store could stream those changes to the running production JVM via the Attach API. That's pretty exotic, isn't it? Nicholas is accompanied in the talk by Apo Romu, a software architect in Efficode Root team. As usual in our podcast, we have added the complete introduction speeches from the participants at the end of the episode. But now let's give floor to Nicholas to bring us right to the heart of the game.
0: So the idea is that when I started my career, well, like 20 years ago, there was no continuous anything. It was just sometimes you could test locally. But then with time, we saw there were a lot of problems when you deploy to production, even though we went through staging before, even there were like perhaps multiple steps. And we wanted to have first continuous integration like compiling and testing that uh, all the changes from the team are okay and can be nicely integrated. And I believe nowadays everybody should be at this step. Everybody should do continuous integration. Probably if if you don't do continuous integration at your company, then perhaps you are not at the right company. But there is a whole new level. And I'm a bit disappointed that sometimes, and most of the times, we conflate the two terms CI and CD. Like CI is continuous integration, CD, it depends. Could be continuous delivery or continuous deployment. And really, it's a huge step between continuous integration and any one of them. Continuous delivery is the idea that you make your package ready to be deployed, but the deployment is still, it's still a business decision. So you say, hey, we are ready to deploy. You ask the business, business says yes. You press a button, then it's deployed. And continuous deployment is the idea that there is no human intervention. It's it's a completely fully automated process from the commits to the deployment. And all, all in between, you have... Like, as I mentioned, the compilation, if it's in a language, that's where le- le- compilation is necessary. You have the testing, perhaps you have unit testing, perhaps you have integration testing, you, ha- you have like quality gates, if necessary, you have everything, everything is automated. And in the end, your software is deployed in, in production. And in general, all people like me, we are used to, hey, we want to deploy to production, we will stop the application, we will have a static page saying, hey, like dear customers or dear users, we are down for a few minutes, please come back in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. And the problem with that approach is, depending on your context, it can have direct impact on your revenue. For example, if you are an e-commerce shop, and you close your shop for 15 minutes. Well, it, it's it's time where you don't sell, and meanwhile you have Amazon which sells. So like customers will probably like switch from your shop, which is down f- every now and then, to Amazon, which is never down. And of course there are an indirect impacts, even if we are not talking about like direct sales. It, it has an impact on your image, and the reason is that most of users who don't work in IT, they expect applications to be always up. Because Amazon is always up, because Google is always up, because Facebook is always up. Uh, I mean, most, if not all, of the widespread application are always up. And, and so, zero downtime becomes something that, like not a requirement, but just like something that expected. And the problem with especially with JVM application is that in general, whether it's a jar or a war, you need to like switch off your virtual machine and then deploy your your new jar or your new war and then start it again. And there was this colleague who told me, hey, like perhaps we could like do something smart like stream the changes. And and so in that case, we wouldn't have zero downtime And I said, Hey, let's do that. Let's try that.
2: How did you come up with that idea? Since there is a huge range of multi node setups that would enable that uh, you to deploy the whole application as you used to, you just load balance between the running nodes and the nodes under upgrade. And I'm sorry, I I want to go a bit back uh, with your talk about the continuous deployment and continuous delivery. As you said, it is a huge step. And normally, yes, it is a technical problem also. But normally, it is more like a cultural problem that the customers are exactly not ready for that, even if they would like to have it they have processes or they have opinions that basically make that impossible i
0: completely agree with you most of the time as i mentioned is <laughs> and that's the reason why i left consulting it's because like the technical team might be ready or might be willing to invest some time but The business wants to keep control because they're afraid that if if they go the fully automated way then they will lose control over it and it will be a mess Whereas like, you know that all the big uh, players that I mentioned, they, they wouldn't be able to do that without like a, this fully automated pipeline. Sorry, I forgot. There was a question before. <laughs>
2: yeah, the question was that how did you come up with an idea of hotloading the bytecode to JVM instead of leveraging existing approaches for uh, node downtime deployments, like multi-node setups and load balancing and that kind of stuff.
0: The problem with infrastructure setup is that we are assuming it's, it's completely stateless. Uh, you have the same thing with Kubernetes. Kubernetes allows you to do rolling upgrades. And, and when you come upon rolling upgrades, if somebody explained it to you, and you say, wow, it's amazing, it's magical, it works out of the box. But most of the time, I mean, it, it, it's it's very easy to do that. The complexity lies in the state. And when you handle states, if you have mult, uh, a multi node setup, perhaps you can... Uh, keep the sessions, for example. You keep the sessions, you replicate the session. that's fine, but how do you cope when you need to change the database schema, for example? That will be very hard to, just with uh, having a multi-node setup. You need to have code that, uh, that is able to handle both the new schema and the old schema, and, and then you go into really, really big trouble. Uh, and This idea was not mine, actually. As I mentioned, it was a colleague of mine who told me, hey, like, this could be a cool idea. And I said, "Ah, okay, let's make it work. And of course, I didn't want to go to the fuel production usage because that would be her whole product. But I wanted to check if the basics, if the foundations would be working. And, And they do, actually. They do pretty well.
2: Okay. You do have a good point uh, related to the, for example, the data schema. I agree with that. I'm just uh, trying to think out how to solve that in real life. So
0: again, it's, it's an experiment. So probably it, it could like um, benefit from a lot of improvements, but uh, the basic setup is I have like a running GVM and I consider it production GVM. And then I have somebody who codes and produces byte codes and there is a job, a streaming job, that reads from the place where you like compile the classes and that, let's say, injects the code, the byte code, into the running JVM and it is as easy as that. We can make it more reliable, we can Make it more complex but but the basic idea is you have actually just a place where you like generate byte codes and you have a running JVM. that's that's as simple as that
2: yeah, so you are keeping kind of registry of the compiled classes somewhere exactly mm-hmm. uh, then I suppose you detect the changed classes and upload it, yeah
0: yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the second step if we want to get a bit deeper. I, I, have, I have a registry, an in-memory registry. I, I'm using Hazelcast. I work for a company called Hazelcast, so I'm using the tools that, that I know. And actually uh, Hazelcast is an in-memory data grid, meaning that you can have a whole lot of different distributed data structures and a registry is just a simple key value store so in that case i'm using the map the imap and the fully qualified class name is the key and the the byte array the byte codes is the value and on the like production TVM side i subscribe so let's say for at this level i subscribe to changes in this Hazelcast IMAP, and every time there is a change, I will reload the class using one of the JVM API.
2: Okay, that sounds interesting. I can imagine it actually working with small hotfixes really well. I had some doubts about what about when we want to upgrade libraries, like let's say you're running, for example, Spring Boot, based application and you want to upgrade the whole Spring Boot release. Have you given any thought how that could be done with this approach or can it be done at all?
0: I'm not sure it can be done, but in that case, in order to reload the bytecodes, the running bytecode and using the instrumentation API. And the instrumentation API is pretty limited. That uh, you cannot add attributes remove attributes of a class you can change however the, the the body of a method that is that is like part of the instrumentation API now if you want to go a bit further and and you want to like change the whole application and not only odd fixes and you mentioned spring boots uh, spring boots uses such a mechanism in DevTools. so basically they have a dedicated class loader, and like, if you want to, to change just your code in development, what they will do, if you do like such an incompatible change, meaning you want to add or remove an attribute, instead of, of stopping the GVM and restarting it again, what they will do is they have two specific class loader, one for your classes and one for the whole libraries and stuff and they will just scratch your classes class loader and like, create a new one. And in that way, you can change your own bytecode without restarting the GVM. If you want to change the library, however, you need to restart the whole stuff. So perhaps if you want to, to make it like, more complex to, to add new features, you could come up with such like different class loader for your running GVM. But I believe it would be like it would be something much more complex and much more involved. This is not an experiment anymore. Then we are talking about creating a dedicated product for that. Yes, that's
2: exactly what I'm interested in is how that approach would work on live production environment. For the Spring Boot I've been using the development version auto loading a bit a few years back. And I dropped using that because the Spring Boot startup times has improved a lot. And the fact that it just took two or three restarts, kind of restarts when it loads the bytecodes into the JVM, and then we ran out of memory. And that was partly because Tomcat does not release all the Resources it's using on the reload. Have you seen this kind of problems with your approach, or are they irrelevant for this?
0: Oh, I, I had another issue recently, and it, it was completely not relevant to this approach. Is uh, when I was using DevTools and it restarted, and I had uh, this class R is cannot be reloaded as class R. So basically, there were still two class loaders like in conflict. This is what I noticed recently, but I didn't investigate further. I mean, for my usage, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm not doing real world projects anymore, like big involved one I'm doing like uh, demos and prototypes. And I just like removed dev tools altogether. Because well, it, it was not necessary.
2: Okay. Yeah, so for sure, for this to become a real uh, production level product, there is a lot of open questions to be answered.
0: Completely. But I, I know people who are using this method to, to send hotfixes to production, and it's in a bank.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I can really see the benefit for doing that, and I believe that it is possible to do that kind of thing. That brings me to a question. How do you then make sure that uh, you always know what's inside your production, and what's inside your version control, that you are in sync when you are deploying a new complete version over that hot patched version?
0: That's a great question. That's a very, very good question. And I believe it has to do with the way we see the world right now. Like right now, we see the world as we make a release. We deploy this release, and this release is tagged, and we know exactly how we can associate it with the version control. However, when you are starting, when you are starting to do continuous deployments, this idea of "hey, we have like a release which has a fixed number, like completely goes away." What we are doing probably is we are having the commits, and the commits is the thing that is deployed. We, th- there is there is no more release as we know the name release. And so th- this is not re- like congruence. This is not related to bytecode deployments, but it is related to like continuous deployment. In continuous deployment you don't have releases anymore. You just deploy the latest commits. As I mentioned in my experiments, uh, because I'm doing that on my own computer, I stream the changes from the developer's machine to production. But we could do the exact same stuff by like, streaming the changes from a continuous integration pipeline a folder where it generates the bytecodes to the production and so there could be like a chain of traceability from like the production back to the pipeline that created that. And you could also like stream any text or any metadata along with it. So it's not an issue per se.
2: Yeah, that, that could actually work, yes.
1: Hi, it's Lauri again. I have to admit that the topic Nicholas and Apo are discussing sounds pretty, well, experimental for an uneducated ear. But because we are talking about continuous deployment, I wanted to enlighten you about our pipeline game. In this free online pipeline game, you and your colleagues can learn the perks of continuous delivery in a fun way. You can find the link to the game in the show notes. If you are a member of a local DevOps community, or you run a team who you would like to better learn the secrets of continuous delivery and continuous deployment, we offer facilitated workshops where you and your folks can learn how to improve your software production. Just get in touch with us and let's talk more. Now, let's get back to our show. Then again, you probably need to do that
2: larger update at some point, and then you need to have mechanics for handling that also. So. It's kind of two deployment methods will be required anyway.
0: Probably, yes, you're correct on that.
2: As you said, you are uploading directly from your development computer and um, on the real life, it probably would be, as you said, from the CI server to the production after certain quality case or uh, security testing and that kind of things. Usually how businesses work today is that you develop some features and then you will have pull requests to your master brands and they get reviewed and uh, then they are processed in the CI and deployed. Is that the approach also here for for the development flow or do you see any other approaches for ensuring the Code based security so that just any developer can't push some arbitrary code to your production and perhaps introduce some malicious code or something?
0: Well, the, the, my approach is not prescriptive in how you want to work. As I mentioned, you can, like, it, it depends on how you want to run things. It can be from a developer's machine, and of course, it would be very, very risky, or it could be from a pipeline, and this pipeline could be. Just run from the master branch when you need to have like the whole team who have reviewed everything is possible, it's not prescriptive. However, I think that regarding security that <laughs> there is that's a, a whole new world. By default, there are like you could run the production GVM with like a static agent that in general is The usual way to run agents is when you start the application, you you run Java, .jar, jar, blah, 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 dash, agentlib, whatever. That's how most monitoring or instrumentation libraries and frameworks and products work. However, that's the realm of static agents. There is a whole different category of agents which are dynamic agents. Meaning that you can run a GVM and then you have another GVM that attaches itself to the running GVM and that loads a new agent, a dynamic agent, into it. And, and that is very, very interesting regarding bug fixes or whatever. So you can run a normal GVM, not in debug mode, in standard mode, and you have these other GVM that launches and that's like loads bytecode into it. And of course you can say, oh, but this is very dangerous. This is a security issue. Well, the problem is that most if not all GVM in the world in production, they run like that. The only way to prevent this, it's the default behavior. The only way to prevent this is to use the security manager. And if you don't know what the security manager is, you should really, really, if you are working in the GVM world, please just check it out. The GVM manager is an important piece of infrastructure. And that's very concerning. Right now, there is a JEP that wants to remove the security manager. So, first problem, you probably don't know about the security manager. Second problem, you probably don't use the security manager. Third problem, because you probably don't know and probably don't use this, then Oracle wants to remove it. (laughs) And if you are afraid that this, what I'm showing you here, is going to be a security issue, well, even if you don't use it, your JVM, like as the Attach API by default, as the instrumentation API by default, if you want to prevent this kind of stuff, you need to do something against it. So it's not a security issue because Actually, you probably have all the security issues already without without even using that.
2: Yeah, so you are saying that most of the products and JVMs are actually running the attach API enabled, the security manager is not configured appropriately. Exactly,
0: that's exactly my point.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that is unfortunately probably so true and uh, something that you really should Look at when hardening your production servers.
0: Exactly, and and moreover, you should be concerned about this new JEP. It's JEP four one one, and the goal of the JEP is to remove the security manager to study what could be alternative. But one of the non-goal in the JEP is it's n- that it shouldn't provide a replacement. So if you are <laughs> if you are a or a DevOps person working with the GVM, please check this out. It's very, very important. I have I have a talk called Securing the GVM and it shows all the bad stuff that you can do uh, with an insecure GVM. You can, like, of course, you can change the type of, <laughs> you can change the type of the Java classes that now is fixed in the latest GDK. I think from JDK 12 you cannot do this anymore, But like in gdk8 you could have like a class a with an attribute of type int and uh, with reflection you could change it to to a type string okay that's that's for fun that's not very interesting but by default your application because it runs on the gvm knows how to like read from a file if it's java it can compile it to like real java byte codes and it can load it on the fly and you can you have that running in production
1: right now it has been an interesting conversation and we are beginning to wrap up my two remaining questions to you Nicholas are if you are somebody listening to this and you would want to apply the crawl walk run approach to this like doing something small first then something bigger and and finally perhaps something grandiose. Where should you start and associated to that, what tools would you be looking at to accomplish it?
0: So the first thing is, this is an experiment. It was never meant to be something grandiose. It was just, the idea behind it was, folks, we are living in a world where we are used to think about discrete things happening. So there is a release, there is a tag, there is a deployment. But actually, this is because people that this is how we think about time, a, a series of discrete things happening. But actually, we can like change our ways of looking at things to see that everything is just a stream of events, meaning that there is a start, but it potentially never ends. And in, the, in this uh, experiment, I'm using Hazel called Jet, which Jet, which is an in-memory stream processing engine to do just that. And, and the idea was <clears throat> once you start seeing the world like through the prism of, of streaming, you can apply it to a whole different stuff. So in general, this is for analytics, you have data somewhere and you want to transform the data into another format that could be more easily processed but actually it can be like for for classes. Classes like compilation is actually an event and the data is the bytecode itself. So you you can apply streaming and event streaming to to a whole bunch of things that you never thought before. So I encourage you to look at HazelCastJet, the in-memory stream processing engine. It's distributed by default and, and you can do whole different like Really, really different things you can do, like, of course, you can do data visualization, you read data from a web service, you store it, you transform it, then you display it on a web page. I'm using it to do zero downtime deployment, as I mentioned, when we were talking about deployment, the real hard part in continuous deployment is the database, is the state. And so you can read from one database, your let's say blue database if we are talking about blue green deployment, and, and write the changes from the blue database to a green database. And then you can have like true zero downtime deployment, and so on and so forth. It never stops. So just start to think about hey, your discrete events that can be a stream. That's my that's what I want you to remember from this talk.
1: Thank you. Really, really interesting and I'm I'm sure inspirational for our audience. To wrap up, let me first give word to Apo to finish off on his part and then handing over to Nicholas you for your final words.
2: This has been a really interesting discussion and I do understand now that there actually might be really good use cases for this kind of approach also. Totally still not convinced all of the possibilities for it, especially because... Large-scale deployments, like a whole application updating, probably would not be possible for this. But in in the hot fixes, I could actually try this out once it is a product of some form. Thank you, and
1: over to you, Nicholas.
0: Well, thanks a lot for your invite. That was an interesting talk. I completely agree. As I mentioned, it's it's really meant to be an experiment. But I believe if, if, you, if you start experimenting in different domains, perhaps it will spark some new ideas and perhaps at some way, it will give like perspective to, to a product. And in that case, hotfixes, definitely, like large scale deployment, probably not. In that case, as I mentioned, you would do another kind of, of zero downtime deployment. But still, it's fun. And besides, it's it gets you a lot more understanding about what you can do with the GVM and what you cannot do. And, and you can do a lot by default.
1: Thank you for listening. Nicholas gave us tons of excellent references to learn more about the subject. You can find all of those in the show notes. Also, if you want to continue the conversation with Nicholas and Arpa, be sure to check out their social media profiles from the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, I would like to give floor back to Nicholas and Apple to introduce themselves properly. I say now, take care of yourself and remember to secure your software delivery chain.
0: So I'm Nicola Frankel. I've been in IT for uh, twenty years this year. For a very long time, I was a consultant, so I was going to customers and helping them and well i found out that most of the problems i had to solve were not technical problems they were organizational or people problem (laughs) and let's say i I felt a bit frustrated so um two years ago i decided that i wanted to focus more on on the technical side and i became a developer advocate
2: i've been with FE code this summer 15 years when i started my career i was in uh, product development after that i did a lot of consulting and with efficode mostly consulting and i'm currently a software architect and back to the product development so i am part of root r d and we are providing our customers with efficode solutions for user management and data visualization which is part of the Root a platform for software development, including all the third-party tools.